Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another Word in Your Ear podcast. Now, a lot of big record labels in the 60s and 70s had a wide variety of artists, but no specific identity. But there was one in particular that made every act it signed seem impossibly hip and characterful and charismatic, and that was Ireland. And much of that was down to the man with the vision to start it and run it for 30 years, who's just published an absolutely wonderful memoir called The Islander, Chris Blackwell. Chris, welcome aboard. Wow. Uh, hi. Great. Hi. So you're in Jamaica, where where you live for so much of your life, and which features so much in the book. You're there now, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you, a, I'm, in, I'm in the north coast of Jamaica. Are you in Goldeneye, the estate that I think you bought from, uh, your family bought from, from Ian Fleming? Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, it's now it's now a... Uh, you know, a place that people come and uh, visit and come and stay. Um, it's like it's a hotel, really. Fantastic. Well, look, you moved. You were born in the UK and you moved to Jamaica very young. And you have this, in the book it describes this idyllic life. Lots about your mother, various family friends, Errol Flynn, an old <laughs> coward, Ian Fleming. Can you give us any memories of of, of, of those three people in particular? Well. Um, they all obviously sort of stood out. Um, Noel Coward was was incredibly funny it, it, when 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 he was talking uh, at all. You know, he 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 he, he had an incredible sense of humour. So he, he, it was just fascinating going and, and listening to listening to him and hanging around. Uh, when I hanging around, we didn't hang around in those days. You just sort of walked around, sipping some r- rum drink or something like that. <laughs> and uh, and um, it, he he was hilarious. He he was hilarious. He was incredibly funny. You'd you'd have to leave the room because you're getting pain from you know when you laugh too much, yeah. you get a pain. So. He he was like that, and you'd come back, and he was back again in a, another character. 
And Errol Flynn, you described as the first person you ever saw on water skis. That's right. Yes. Yes. It, it was it was incredible. He, he, well, it, it's right at the beginning. So, you know, today is well gone, 70, 80 years later. So all the technology is so different. So it's hard even to uh, describe it. But, you know, he, he, he's, he sat on, you know, the steps that go down from a boat. Yeah, boat yeah. Without that. So he's sitting on the edge there. And then the guy who was going to pull him along on the jet ski was looking back all the time, looking back all the time. And then, and then he sort of, and our friend sort of gave a, like, a kick on it. But with his head, it's such because in one hand he had a dachshund, <laughs> a little baby dachshund, and the other hand he was holding the the um, thing. So um, I thought, I watched it, you know, and and I thought, well, how long is this going to last? This is going to be a disaster any minute. But then it turned around and came back, and then he signaled. He gave a signal to the driver. And the driver just carried on, carried him on, and dropped him Brilliant. where the steps, steps were. And he didn't. He, he, all his bottom of his knees down were wet, but that's all. Brilliant. Uh, just one last one. You're, 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 uh, Ian Fleming. Uh, I, I think your mum inspired the character Honeychild Rider in Doctor No, and also Pussy Galore and Goldfinger. You must be. You must be immensely proud. <laughs> Well, they're two great titles, that's for sure. <laughs> they are, they are. Yeah. Well, look, you, I wanted to ask you first about the, the job you got working for Wurlitzer when you were, you'd been in, you went back to, uh, to England and you were, you were working, you went to school there and then, and then you came back to Jamaica and, and worked for Wurlitzer setting up jukeboxes in Jamaica. And you did all these extraordinary record buying trips to the US to stock them and selling records to sound systems. Was that what gave you a taste for wanting to try and, you know, popularized music that you liked and maybe give you the idea of starting a record label? I, I, it must have been really because, you know, what was my biggest interest was music. And so if you're, if you're doing that, then, you know, you, you've, you've got to try and find a way of making a living, you know, uh, if that's really the thing you're most interested in. And um, so, you know, um, that's kind of how I started. I went to somebody and suggested they <clears throat> sing, uh, uh, do a record for me because he sounded a lot like Brooke Benton. <coughs> His name was uh, Wilfred Edwards. Yeah. And um, he was the first guy I recorded. And um, it went it, it went to the number one. And then the other people were Laura Leitkin went to number one, and another one was Owen Gray. And they all went all went to number one, the records in, in Jamaica, and that was that was because you you were now hearing Jamaicans singing songs before you'd be hearing uh, Winifred Atwell or uh, you know great uh, singers etc from America etc like that or what was on radio in those days. So, um, but that's, that's what really sort of kicked it, kicked it in. And, and the, the people who really drove it were the, were the sound system guys, were the guys who, you know, went around and went, went to open areas, huge open areas 
and you couldn't put on the sound system and the, the volume was unbelievable you know and you speakers hanging in the trees i think you said in the book yeah, isn't that right, that's right. wonderful yeah. it's just a brilliant image and when you started the label um well i think in 1959 one of the first acts was a bermudan jazz pianist called lance hayward and he put out a record called lance hayward at the half moon hotel which actually you admitted actually was recorded in a studio genius <laughs> did, did you think he was a, a, a just a safe commercial bet to start the, the your label with it was just it was just something that 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 came and that that, that came to me what can i tell you there's something like that i mean there was I wasn't drunk or anything. I might have had, yeah, I might have had a couple of little drinks, but I wasn't. I wasn't sort of, you know, nuts. Uh, and um, you know, I and I loved the, the the music that they they played. These guys were from Bermuda. The lead the lead singer Lance Hayward was blind, and you know there was just something uh, about it which I, I I thought, my gosh, look. Look! Look what's happening here. Look at look look what the music is. The music's good. The piano players are great. The guitarists are great, etc. And you know, you, it's that, that that's that's their life. You know? And you must have thought there was a, an international audience, or hoped there was, for for people like the guitarist Ernest Wrangling, who you signed, didn't you, early on, and Laurel Aitken and Jimmy Cliff, who you, who you mentioned earlier. I mean, they weren't when you were putting those records out. They had no kind of profile abroad, did they? No, 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 not, 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 not initially, not initially, not, not initially. The yeah. breakthrough in the UK, which I must ask you about, because it was so thrilling. I was, uh, however old I would have been, 10, I think, when this record came out, it was Millie's My Boy Lollipop. And uh, I'm sure you get asked about it all the time, but it's just so interesting. It's a doo-wop song by a New York uh, group the Cadillacs so how did you find that song and why were you so convinced that it would work and work with her <coughs> tell us the story of that well I found it um gosh I found I I I I I found it because it was one of the records that Coxon had sent to me in England yeah um, it was Roy and Millie on one side of the record and and Roy and Millie on the other, other side of the record. I can't remember what the other type one, but I'm not at all sure that my boy lollipop was on the A side. I'm not at all sure, but um, it, it, it might have been in Jamaica. So what they would do um, when they put together their records in Jamaica, they would send to me to distribute them to the Jamaican community in London. And that was, you know, the connection that, that I was getting from them backwards and forwards. So when I played the Millie record to friends of mine in England, they went nuts. I mean, they literally went snuff. They, they said, this is, I mean, they, they would not leave my apartment unless they gave him the record. <laughs> and it was... Um, well, no one had heard anything like it, had they? It's a whole new, just a whole new backbeat. That's right. No, that's right. And that was, it was an enormous hit all over the world and kind of gave you the, the money to, to get the, 
to get get the record label up and running. But there's a really interesting story where you go back to Jamaica with her, and she's reunited with with her mother, and she's now come back to 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 Jamaica as pretty much the most famous person, uh, you know, on the island. And uh, and you you had very mixed feelings about that. Her mother just curtsied when she saw her, didn't she? Yes, and uh, in fact, it was you know, firstly when she arrived at the airport, there was a lot of people at the airport. Yeah, <clears throat> and that was the most people. And uh, her mother wasn't at the airport, and the, obviously the the plan was you know, soon as Millizaires to get her in the car and get her to the hotel. Yeah. So. So they got her in the guitar, and on the way, all the way to the hotel, along the road, people knew that was the way she was going, so people were, were, were cheering after her and things like that. I mean, not all along the road, like if the, you know, when uh, Nelson Mandela or somebody came. But yeah, yeah. Pretty, much, pretty much that kind of thing. And so when she arrived at the hotel, and came and everybody laughing and clapping and things like that. And um, she she went up uh, up to her her mom, and her mom cur- curtsied to her, right. And I thought I thought it was, um, you know, I thought there was something really extraordinary about about that. And they, and what what it, what sort of came up from it was a, a lot of. Um, a lot of difficulty for Millie to stay in Jamaica because you know she'd become sort of you know um, uh, on a, on a, on, a, on another level on, yeah. somebody never never had anything like that before you know so um, that, that was it. But you had kind of mixed feelings about how it had affected her life, hadn't you? Because you said after that you didn't want to be a a pop Svengali, as you put it. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. It's a, it's a, it's you know, it's it's somebody needing to be on stage, and then you know, one time they can't be on stage because yeah. this has happened or that has happened or this has changed in their life or that. And it's very no, it's not something you want to. No, no. Yeah. There's a great quote you put in from Tom Waits where he says, "I've I've never had a hit single, but I've had a hit life," which I thought was a was a really good point. <laughs> but uh, I just want to ask you about back in Britain. One of your first signings was the Spencer Davis Group, and you were also the legal guardian for Steve Winwood, who was only 14, as you were to to, to Millie, you know. But they uh, Spencer Davis Group, uh, you know, owe a lot of their success to keep on running and somebody help me. And those were songs that you. Selected, didn't you? Composed by the Jamaican songwriter Jackie Edwards. Why did you choose those particular songs? Did you think they were just completely different to the the the, the characteristic of everything else that was happening in the charts in Britain at the time? Um, in a way, yes. It was something that somebody was doing from J- Jamaica. Yeah, and maybe they the the band could play it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So it was, just... it, it was really from that, and they, and and it is not a, a difficult music to to play. Yeah. Once once you're on it, you know you kind of lock into it. So they, uh, you know, it really became their their record completely. But the the original song and the original production 
um, was um, Wilfred that was was around. Jimmy Cliff was around. Yeah, I had I had them around at the at the, at the time. They recorded at Pi Pi Studios. It's fantastic records. This they're brilliant. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the the the, the moment where the kind of Ireland's rock catalogue started to take off. You know, and and ask you about groups like Traffic and, and Nick Drake and Free. But there's a bit again in the book where you you said that the the label was characterised by underdogs, rejects, and misfits. So that was wonderful. So why why were why were those people so appealing? Was it that they were just likely to be more original? Yes, more original, more more yes, more original, but doing something uh, a different way, looking to do something a different way, whatever you know, coming up with something you haven't heard yet. Yeah. So that was the kind of identity that you wanted the label to have. <clears throat> Yes, and also the vibe of the person. Really, that's really incredibly important. You know, and that's really, it's really important. Yeah. So know that that you know uh, <clears throat> you're supported. If you if you put a record out, right, <clears throat> and. Um, you know, it, it, it can be that the people in charge of promotion can sometimes uh, make a mistake, you know, yeah. and say they don't really feel this and, and, it, and, and it didn't really happen, but it kind of happened somewhere else, you know. So that's, that's, that's kind of what, what I wanted to avoid in any of that area. Well, one of the really pioneering things you seem to be doing was that a lot of other record labels were taking a very short-term view of the acts and wanting kind of instant return. And Traffic's a really good example. I mean, obviously, you had a great fondness for Steve and you'd had all that success with the Spencer Davis group. But you had this belief in Traffic where you, 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 you're convinced that if you allowed them the time and you put them in the right creative space, they would invent a new kind of music. So how did you achieve that? Was that that was the Aston Tyrold sort of episode, was it? How did you achieve that? And what were you hoping that they were going to produce? What direction did you want them to go in? Well, what you just described is really pretty close, you know, because it was something different, something ex exceptional. I mean, Steve Winwood, I mean, is a serious musician. I mean, he's unbelievable. You know, in, in, in keyboard, in guitar, you know, in vocal, his singing, uh, you know, he, he's, 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 he's an incredible. And um, um, so when that entered into my life, when I was looking around, still with Jamaicans, uh, trying to, you know, get them uh, happening in England. Um, you know, a couple of them, like Jimmy Cliff, got got involved. Jimmy Cliff got involved with a Cat Stevens record yeah. later on. And, you know, I, I was very happy about that, 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 you know, that, you know, it wasn't all just locked into one place. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that's, that's how you had to do it, because that's, yeah. So would Free have ever succeeded, do you think, if you hadn't 
Uh, there's a moment where you, where you convince them they, that you like all right now, but you've got to edit it down so that it's, it's possible to play it on the radio. Was that the, the major turning point for them, do you think? You mean up or down? Oh, up, up. because they suddenly had a hit, yeah. didn't they? they had, yes, a huge hit, a huge hit, a huge hit, I must say. But, you know, they, I, I love them. I love them. I was introduced to them. In, in London and uh, and the uh, Wardour Street, there was a club in Wardour Street at the time, and I went to, to, to see them and they were so powerful on stage, they were tiny, you know, one of them was kind of tallish, but the, the other, the other uh, two or three were tiny. Tiny and, and incredibly young too, weren't they? Yes, and, um, and they were great. but they were talking and I really signed them because I knew, they knew what they were wanting to, how they, you know, what they were wanting to do. Uh, and I, I, I felt that when that's the case, boy, you're almost there. You know, the problem is if you take on something and you haven't really found the right, you know, spot to, for it to be exposed. But um, when it suddenly comes to you, that's, that's great. Yeah, and wonderful. that band had it. They, they had it, and they had it in confidence. I mean, they had absolute confidence. None of yes. them had any doubt whatsoever that they were the best thing around. 
and seem to kind of achieve their potential. I wanted to ask you also about Nick Drake, because it must be so satisfying that he's finally got the reputation that he deserved. Were you involved in that whole business of trying to get him to do publicity and to, you know, to sell himself as a performer? Because the fact that he wasn't very good at either obviously really held him back. You know, was, was that frustrating? Well, I believe, um, you know, I, I'm very grateful to Joe Boyd for um, for him uh, because when Joe Joe Boyd was managing him, yeah, and then, then he had to go off to America. He was given a, a minute wonderful kind of job, and. So he passed on to me, um, Sandy Denny, and Fairport Convention, That's and right. the, the different bands, one of whom was who we're talking about. Yeah. Because so, any act is a, is, a, is a balance between kind of talent and the appetite to succeed. So when you were signing, when you were signing acts, how much did their desire to sell themselves, how much was that a critical factor in... in in making you want to sign them? Well, in the case of the ones we were just talking about, in each of their cases, <coughs> would be really focusing on what is a, a, a great song and a great, I mean, that was it. They, they yeah. came as musicians, so they needed to really, you know, have a great song and yeah. something special. Well, were there any other labels that you were looking at that you considered to be rivals, you know, the others that were really adventurous and risk-taking and you watched them closely? I mean, I was thinking of maybe Harvest or Charisma. I don't know. Did you did you think of those people as being on your patch? I, I was never... I was never chasing, chasing that. Because somebody signed to a Virgin... You know, I, I, I it, it didn't, it didn't, it, it, you know, fortunately, I, I worked for myself so I could choose. Yeah. That, you know, I don't feel I'd be the best person for this act or we'd be the best person for this act, though I know somebody else is going to sign. Yeah. So, you know, or when I say somebody, in other words, I'm not saying because he's not talented, but because maybe somebody else gets what he wants to do. There's a, a, a fantastic sequence about Bob Marley, which is it, it's so interesting. And you, you're talking about the sound of Marley, who you've been working with for a long time, as being without a kind of international appeal. It was kind of reggae music, but it hadn't quite connected with the, with the big uh, potential white audience. So describe how you you what, what you what you the changes that you felt should be made to his sound that would would bring in a wider a wider audience, and I think the role of Wayne Perkins, the guitarist, too. <clears throat> um, I think um, just adding adding um, <coughs> a, a, a quote rock guitarists to the mix. And um, and also, you know, acquiring, you know, really good musicians, whether yeah. uh, all the way from, you know, 
all, all the different the different sides from the different keyboard instruments to the shaking instruments you know or every, everything like that so so bob really picked that himself i didn't have any, anything to do with that yeah because he was really really ambitious and really open to suggestions wasn't he as to how to how to develop it yes definitely definitely no he he when when i first met him he'd already been there was bob marley and the whalers so that means he was sort of leading that brand if you know what i mean and that was from a, a, from 10 years before um which, which I, I i knew of i knew of him how difficult was that period when with peter tosh and and Bunny Livingston, when you, when you, when, when you know, when they were leaving the group, and uh, there was there was a certain amount of friction. Well, it was just like, like what I've just described. It's it's it, it's not what they had was the th three of them, and they were getting on pretty well. Um. And they were, and, and you know, and the, and they all were very much pushing their own music. You yeah. Know, Peter Tosh wrote great songs. Bunny Whaler wrote incredible songs. Bob Marley wrote great songs. So, you know, I just felt that that um, Bob could could really. If one put the you know guitar sound, American guitar sound, into it, um, and another keyboard sound, in other words, just make it and enhance it just just a, a very little bit without taking away any you know of. Uh, the magic or whatever yes I I absolutely know. yeah god that must have been a thrilling moment to, to hear that come together in the studio incredible but there was i was going to ask you about the various groups who who you needed convincing to sign I and mean, one was roxy music that you weren't at all uh keen on on getting them on board i think until you saw the artwork of their first album was that right y yes yes that's right that's right and that's what swung <clears throat> it no, um, Tim Clark, who had been working with me for a long time at yeah. Island Records, and, uh, and he'd been very keen on 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 the band all the time, and I, I and it just wasn't my thing so much. I, I guess I was wanting a little bit more raunchy, rock and rollish or reggaeish or something. Maybe that maybe. And I, I felt that I didn't see how I could get get that working out of you know working with with, with that band who's who who looked fantastic and ready you know just ready to be big stars pretty much instantly yeah so that was that was really that was really it. What made you change your mind about you too? Because again, I think I think they they'd been presented to you you couldn't quite see it at first was there something that just uh that, that that made you change your mind no nothing nothing was pushed at them at, to me 
before. I never heard any music of them before. I went into the club and, and saw them. I never saw it. People may have been sending sending to me, but I never got them uh, because it, it's just, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not a, a way to me that I really want to go and hear a U2, a band which people are talking about and have, have some really great talent. So, you know, so I, 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 I wanted to, to, to see them, looking forward to, to yeah, see them. Yeah. And you talk about how when you have a band that big selling seven-figure quantities of records, that it's very easy to be less interested in the small-scale operators. But soon after that, you, you, you signed Tom Waits. And, you know, was that, was, he, was that because he was attracted to Ireland because, as you say, that you, you can't direct him and that you didn't try and direct him? Because that was a kind of mutual attraction between the two of you, wasn't it? Well, uh, Tom Waits, I, I, you know, I'm, I love music. I can't play nothing. Yeah. I love music, right? And, and talent and music. And I just thought he was fantastic because I, 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 he didn't sound like anybody else and didn't want to sound like anybody else. You know, he, he was just himself, you know, and um, that was it. Did you get to hear any of those records he made in, in development and, and offer any opinion about them? Or did you just wait till the finished product was, was out? Um, it would have been... I'm not, I'm not sure, but I would think in most instances it would be when it was when, when Tom had finished with it. Yeah. There's, there's a, a, a bit where you talk about in the, the mid-80s uh, uh, how um, that you felt that the, the label had become like any other label. But at that time, you had the B-52s, you had Z Records, you know, Kid Creole and Christina, these fantastically fashionable New York acts, and you had later Frankie Goes to Hollywood. So at what point did you think you'd become conventional, as it were? Um, probably then. <laughs> it was then <laughs> well, around the Frankie Goes to Hollywood time. Well, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood was another story because this, that that was just one of the most incredible r records, you know, ever. How it how <laughs> it uh, just incredible. And two tribes, you know, the one two no, tribes. No, they're just wonderful. The Trevor Horn Productions. I think they're incredible records. They still sound fantastic today. Well, you must play them. You know, Frankie. Yeah. They're, they're, they're incredible records. I, I, he, he brought me in to come and listen to Two Tribes before to see what I thought. And I'll never forget it. He could, I could not believe how the, 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 the sound, the impact of it was just incredible. And then, you know, that's why I, I really asked him to work with Grace. That's right. There are oh, extraordinary records. Those you can hear all those kind of the jungle sounds in them. I mean, just there's so much in it. It's like a it's like a, a kind of sonic movie. Uh, yeah. They're revolutionary records, I think. So, just a general question. At one point, you suggest that acts are a lot of acts are are, are mistrustful and suspicious about record deals, and always feeling that they should have made more out of them. Is that true? I mean, is it, is it very hard? 
for relations to end on a high note when you've signed someone to a record, uh, your record label? Um, I, d- I don't, well, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. I'm trying to think of anything which is difficult or anything, and I'm sure them, there must have been somewhere, but I can't. I can't think. I can't think of it. No, that's fine. There was. A, there was a, a. You mentioned various groups that you you failed to sign, and I wondered if you had any regrets about those. I, I suppose you probably don't. I think you you turned down Procol Harum. I think you lost out trying to sign Led Zeppelin. You missed Dire Straits. I think you missed Madonna. But presumably those things you just shrug and just think, well, they're gone, and that's there are other fish to fry. Yes. Well, it would be. It would be. It, if, if it was something that I really felt excited about and felt that I could contribute or do something about, uh, I, might, I might have done that. But the, I, I, when I saw Madonna, Madonna already knew exactly where she was going and how to get there. And she, 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 I, I thought she was the smartest could be right at that point in time. But, you know, I, I loved what I was doing. You know what I mean? So I was really into, you know, the different acts we're working with and things like that. So I wasn't really out there trying to uh, to have, you know, instant hits or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why did you sell Ireland then in, in 1989? What, what, was the, what was the reason behind that? Why it, why it won? Why did you sell Ireland when you sold it? Uh, because because I, I it had got too much, yeah, too too much, and I made I made mistakes, you know, and it was um, it was uh, I was trying to I was trying to remake the harder they come, in Washington D.C. Yeah, and that cost me a lot of money, so I thought you know something, I, I think this I I, th- I think films and music are, are super important. But I don't think I have the skill for it, so I'm going to check out. <laughs> That's being impossibly modest. <laughs> was there, um, were there any acts that you you you'd signed that you felt deserved more success that you think they just oh, should yes. have had? It? Yes. Who, which ones in particular? Um, Robert Palmer, maybe I don't know. I'm just thinking. Well, yes, Robert Palmer, because Robert Palmer, Robert Palmer is in the absolute top 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 for me his his talent everything about him he was he was so smart i can't tell you and uh i got to know him very well you know i i i i, I met him when he'd um, just run into a club to 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 be lead singer for a band and um so after he sang, you know, I, I said hello, and then I reconnected with him, and then he was he was with that band, and then he left that band, and he started another band, and left that band, and I kept in touch with him all the time. And then one day he said to me, "How came and back and said he would really like to get if I could if I could record him in New Orleans." Or when they say record him, send the record. Yeah. You know, do it in the audience. And I said, oh, I love that idea. Absolutely. So that's, that's what I did. So he made his first records. 
sneaking Sally through the alley. Um, Fantastic records. The bit in the book where you where you see him coming into the club the first time, you describe that in incredible detail. It's him, I think, and his girlfriend, and just the, the whole place turns to look at them because they're so fantastically, impossibly gorgeous. It's, That's it's, right. It's really, it's, it's a fantastic bit of writing. But uh, was there a particular, I mean, it's really hard to tell with all these different decades, but was there a particular golden era, do you think, for you? One particular time you thought was just particularly rich? Um, well, obviously, there was a time when everything was working at its best, and and, and that never lasts too long. Uh, without you know, it has to change one way or another. But if yeah. I were to take it, that there was a period when Bob Marley was was you know playing first festivals around the world or shows around the world. YouTube uh, was was doing doing the same. Uh, Cat, Cat Stevens was still, you know, uh, selling millions and millions of records, yeah. doing big shows, and, and etc. You know, two or three, which I, I I can't think of immediately, who were, were on the road. Well, Sly and Robbie, you know, things like that. Black Uhuru. Well, it's, so it's, that that that. that but, yeah, sorry. No, it's, it's. I was going to say. I mean, it's it's a it's a fantastic life, Chris, and it's, and it's an extraordinary story. And it's a wonderful book. It's really colourful and really unusual insights into into a huge chunk of of, of so many people's record collections, particularly mine. So uh, uh, thanks so much for talking to us. And yeah, the, I just say the island uh, the islander, uh, my life yeah. and music and beyond by Chris Blackwell is out on on Bonnier Books. And I, I couldn't be more uh, um, enthusiastically recommended. Thanks so much, Chris. Brilliant to talk to you. Uh, thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.